decision making is a part of human life, is it not? We make decisions every day. Think of today, for example. You've already made a decision to come here to this worship service. Before you came, you opened your closet and dresser and decided what to wear. And after this service, you'll be faced with a decision that could make or break the rest of your day. What will I have for lunch? If you decide on Wendy's Baconator and Fries, your body will experience the rest of the day very differently than if you get a grilled chicken salad. Just trust me on this one, all right? Now, these are all decisions. We make them every day, and most of them don't require much thought or prayer. Our minds have already been formed by habits so that we can choose rather quickly certain things over other things. But there's another category of decisions, and that's what we need to discuss this morning. I'm speaking of the weightier decisions in life. As individuals, they come to us at different life stages. Who will I befriend and who will I avoid? That decision will shape how a kid experiences life quite a bit. What activities will I pursue? What will I avoid? Again, an important decision often made in collaboration with one's parents. Then are the obvious big decisions. What college will I go to or will I go to college? Who will I marry or will I marry? How many kids will I have? Will I have kids? Where will I work? Where will I live? What church will I go to? How active will I be in it? These are all the weightier decisions of life. God has made each one of us responsible for what we decide. Now here's a pivotal question for each of us. When faced with a big decision, what do you do? There's plan A, there's plan B, and there's plan C, what happens if you do nothing. Plan C is a favorite for those who get overwhelmed by all the choices and those whose self-doubt becomes crippling to them. So what about you? When you're faced with the various options with major decisions, what do you do? What process do you enter into? Who do you talk to? Who do you listen to? Who do you trust? What resources do you consult? What practices do you engage in? Just think about it for yourself. How do you make decisions? How do you discern? Today we're going to talk about how to discern the will of God. Sounds kind of intimidating, but it's not. Both as individuals and as a church community, how do we discern what God wants? By doing so, we'll be proposing something that is countercultural. We are not taught to involve God much in our decisions. Outside of a little prayer here and there, maybe we look for a sign or a coincidence, but that's about it. So today I want us to consider a more robust way of involving God in our decisions. Some have called it the dance of discernment. Now before we learn the dance of discernment, we must confess that our culture knows nothing of this dance. On account of this fact, many Americans are anxious and fearful of making the wrong choice. Anxiety is thick in the American air that we breathe, and none feel more strongly this anxiety than our teenagers and young adults. Because we are told from a young age that that we are the masters of our own fate. And if this were true, then your personal destiny depends on the decisions you make. With one wrong decision, your life could come crumbling down. And so to prevent this from happening, we're told to reach for the stars, set your goals high, work hard, and you can be whatever you can be. The assumption is that eventually, if we work hard enough, 
eventually we can find our way into a life that we enjoy by making the right decisions. Philosophy supporting this idea is ancient, but it's not Christian. This idea injects so much power into our personal decisions, a power that they simply do not have. If we buy into this philosophy and believe in God, there's a strong likelihood that we will reduce the Almighty to a lunch lady who stands behind the counter and dishes up made-to-order lives. That's Craig Barnes' metaphor. In his book on reclaiming the Heidelberg Catechism, which some of you have read, he goes on to write, The great problem with this fantasy is that it forgets that we are mere creatures. Somewhere along the way, we begin to think of ourselves as our own creators. He continues with the quote that's in the sermon notes of your bulletin. You may want to pull that out. You may want to come back to this one later this week. He writes, Our greatest danger lies not in making bad choices, but in believing those choices define our lives. Even a good choice can be disastrous if made under the impression that it will save us. He continues, God created us with the freedom to make choices, but none of these choices creates our lives. It's living under the illusion that they do, believing that our lives are only in our hands that leaves us constantly anxious and fearful. But as Christians, we believe instead that our lives are only in God's hands. This means that our decisions are at the same time important and unimportant. Our decisions are important because God calls us to be responsible, loving agents of God's mission. God calls us to responsible, loving action with whatever God has placed within our sphere of influence. So that's why we're entering a discernment process as a community around the topic of youth today. God has placed teenagers in our church community and in nearby neighborhoods, and God calls us to responsible, loving action as we connect with them and engage with them with the love of Christ. But our decisions are also unimportant. And I think this is, Im- this is important to mention, uh, lest we get confused that what we're doing today is of utmost importance. Our, import- our decisions are also unimportant in the sense that we cannot save ourselves by them. We do not create our lives by our choices. It's not up to us to construct a rich life from amid the various options. We are not the center of the story of our lives. Jesus Christ is at the center. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ is at the center of our lives. And not just in our lives, but Jesus is the central character in God's grand narrative, God's grand drama of salvation. That began long before us and will continue far after us. So this should actually come as a relief. The comfort of the gospel is that we belong to God, body and soul, not because we've worked really hard and earned it. We belong to God not because we've taken the right classes, won trophies in the right sports, developed skills in the right extracurricular activities, buffed up our resumes to obtain the right scholarships, or even made the right choices. Those are not bad things, but it's not why we belong to God. We belong to God because God is love extended to you and me. We belong to God because long before we decided anything, 
God decides to adopt us as his beloved children. It is purely a gift to you and to me that God the Spirit binds us to Jesus Christ, places us within the orbit of the kingdom of God, and creates for us a life worth living. This is the good life of response to what Jesus decides for the world and for you and me. We can trust that it's good because Jesus is good. If you don't believe me, check out the Gospels. So our decisions are important. The decisions we'll be making, not today, but we'll be talking about leading up to some decisions, they're important. We're called to be loving, responsible agents. But let us not get puffed up by the illusion that they are all important. So that's the perspective I think we must begin with before we enter the dance of discernment. And now that we have it, let's learn the first steps of the dance, shall we? Our teacher is the Holy Spirit speaking through Scripture. We'll focus on two selections from the book of Romans. It starts on page 919 of the Pew Bibles, if you'd like to follow along, 919. Before we read, let us pray. Holy Spirit, our teacher, show us everything we need to know about the dance of discernment. Get us in step with you as individuals and as a church. And don't just teach us how, but give us the will and the intention and the desire to do what you say. May we trust that your will is truly the best of all possible scenarios. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our destiny. Amen. Romans 8, verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Yeah. I think we should start that as a call and response. I say, hear the word of the Lord, and you guys say, yay. <laughs> hear the word of the Lord. No. Okay, there we go. <laughs> For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Flipping a couple pages to chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Spiritual discernment is the capacity to recognize and respond to the presence and activity of God, both personally and in community. Can we agree upon that definition of discernment? It's in your sermon notes. Could you say that with me? Get that ready there. You ready? Discernment is the capacity to recognize and respond to the presence and the activity of God, both personally and in community. So that's the goal before us. 
And if that's what discernment is about, then the dance of discernment is first and foremost a dance in which we are not the leaders. Not even the pastors or elders or deacons or long-term members. None of us are the leaders. God the Spirit is leading. God the Spirit initiates the dance. God the Spirit invites us onto the dance floor. God's Word makes clear that we are His followers. We are led by the Spirit of God. God is leading, and our job is to learn the steps as He takes our hands. Now, how many of you have taken dance classes in any form? Show of hands. We've got a few. I used to consider myself a good dancer. Then I learned something called self-awareness. <laughs> Stephanie's laughing because she was with me during that transition. <laughs> but I have taken dance lessons with Stephanie, and if you've done the same, you'll know that at first it takes some serious concentration. It doesn't just come naturally. You have to learn the steps. You have to pay attention to the moves, to the count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And it's not beautiful at four, first. And it doesn't feel like you're flowing majestically. In my experience, it's not so much fun those first days. But I'm told that if you stick with it and you learn the steps well enough to the point that they are stored in the muscle memory of your body, then eventually you can give yourself to the dance. You can surrender yourself to the dance and enjoy the natural flow of movement between you and your partner. So it is with the dance of discernment. Our dance partner is God himself. God the Spirit invites us onto the dance floor to learn the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If we stick with it, the dance of discernment will become habit. It will feel natural, and we'll be able to give ourselves over to the dance. Some of you are at that point. So when faced with big decisions in life, we will be able to enjoy the natural flow of movement between ourselves and God. This is what I want for each one of you and for me. But for most of us, I have a suspicion that it will not be so easy at first. As we begin, it will feel awkward and hard. We will feel clumsy and silly and incompetent. That's because we have been so shaped by the culture around us without knowing it. We have been conformed to the world that says we are the masters of our own fate. Our decisions are up to us, and our individual decisions have the power to determine our destiny. So we act this belief out in different ways. Now, some of us, I think there's kind of three kinds of people. Not exactly, but this might help. Some of us, I think, operate more naturally out of our heads. So when we approach decisions, we'll think long and hard and consult the experts and list the pros and cons. Stephanie and I's method. Others operate more out of their gut. They approach decisions with their intuition radars up, alert, and waiting for something to buzz. And then they know in their gut what they ought to do. Still others operate more out of the heart, their feelings. They approach decisions paying close attention to their emotions. If I did this, how does that sit with me? If I did that, how does that make me feel? Head, gut, heart. Now, none of these three primary ways of approaching decisions are bad, and none are better than the others. But they are not enough. 
We might say a little prayer here and there, and so we tell ourselves that God is leading us, but I wonder how often we deceive ourselves at this point. Our self-deception becomes especially clear in communal discernment, when two Christians believe God is telling the community to go in two very different directions. This is a sign that something is not right. So what are we to do? We are to take the hand of Jesus Christ, who leads us in the dance of discernment. And this is really possible, according to Romans 8.14, and other texts that talk about how God's adopted children are led by the Spirit. If you rely on God, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if your allegiance is to the Holy Spirit, if you have faith, then God says that you, yes, even you, are led by the Spirit of God. This dance of discernment is truly possible. We can learn the steps more and more, and we can grow in our capacity to discern as we grow in our life with God. John Chrysostom, the most popular preacher from the 4th century, he comments on this verse, saying, Note the great honor here. For as believers, we do not merely live in the Spirit, we are led by Him as well. The Spirit is meant to have the same power over us as a pilot has over his ship, or a charioteer over his horses. And it is not only the body, but the soul also, which is meant to be controlled in this way. As a pilot controls his ship, as a charioteer directs his horses. That, my friends, is how the Spirit desires to lead us in the dance of discernment. Now, for those whose individual freedom feels a bit cramped by that statement, take heart. God is a far more loving and gracious and skilled pilot to guide your life. Far more than you are and than I am. So, now we understand discernment as the capacity to recognize and respond to God's presence and activity. We've named what conformity to the world looks like in terms of decisions, that it's all up to us. A conformity that prevents us from stepping onto the dance floor. And we've made the commitment to enter the dance of discernment. We've taken the Spirit's hand, and we trust the Spirit to lead us. We've positioned ourselves as humble followers, as adopted sons and daughters of God, not enslaved by fear, no, but set free by hope. And we truly desire to do what the Father says, do we not? Because we trust that the Father has our best interests at heart. Imagine the best of human fathers, our Heavenly Father. It's even greater. So what do we do next? I invite you to pull out your uh, insert from your bulletin, the one that is blue. Here's what we do next. We get ready to discern as a community. We get set, and we go, (laughs) racing off to do the will of God together. Now, there's a lot of words on this page. We obviously aren't going to take the time to tease them all out this morning. I'll do some more of that next week, so I encourage you to come back. If you have Labor Day plans, I encourage you to make the decision to listen to the sermon online so that you can be in step with what our church is is being led into. 
But I do think it's important before our conversation to highlight two of the bullet points on this graphic. These two points, I think, will be necessary to shape our conversation together in, in, in just a few minutes. So under the get set, positioning ourselves, putting ourselves in a position to be led, to be led by the Spirit. You'll know a, a, a phrase that says, prayer for indifference, and then a couple below, the prayer for wisdom. Let's address those briefly. First, the prayer for indifference. When discerning the will of God, especially in community, but also as an individual, we must each pray for God to make us indifferent. Not in the sense of apathy or in the sense of, Lord, help me not to care. No, but we must each pray that we would be indifferent to everything but the will of God. Ruth Haley Barton, the author of Pursuing God's Will Together, writes, Indifference in the discernment process means that I am indifferent to matters of ego, prestige, organizational politics, personal advantage, personal comfort or favor, or even my own pet project. The prayer of indifference is the prayer for God's will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. It's Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. Will you commit to praying for indifference? Here's a helpful question to guide, to to get us positioned right before God. Ask yourself, what needs to die in me in order for the will of God to come forth in and among us? What needs to die in me in order for the will of God to come forth in and among us? If we are to discern well as a community, we cannot ignore this dance move. Without it, we will never move forward in unity and with passion. So we need it. Second, the prayer for wisdom. This one is more well-known because we see it quite plainly in, in James, the letter to James, chapter one, 1, verse 5. Anyone who needs wisdom should ask God. God's very nature is to give to everyone without a second thought, without keeping score. Wisdom will certainly be given to those who ask. That's good news. Do you believe this? We must hear, alongside James, Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 3. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. He goes on to talk about how the wisdom of God is the foolishness of the cross. So I'll end with this. All of our decisions, all of our prayers for wisdom, should be made in light of the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ should cast a shadow on the dance of discernment. We pray for wisdom because we need it, and God's got it. But we should be prepared to hear something that will cost us something. God's wisdom is the cross. God's sacrificial love on display. When God says, take up your cross and follow me, it's not just for the sake of being uncomfortable, but it's for the sake of sacrificing something of ourselves out of love for others. The point is the love for others. So when we pray for wisdom, we must be prepared to hear something 
that will cost us something. When God imparts wisdom to us, we should expect that the will of God will require something of us, to cost us something, because that's how God gets stuff done. In the economy of redemption, that's how Christ's mission is furthered, by the costly love of his disciples, who are led by the Spirit of God as adopted dear children. And you are one of those children. God is asking you, will you dance with me? Let us pray. Lord, we treasure and tremble at your invitation to us to dance. It is far more comfortable for us to manage decisions on our own. But we trust you, even in your wild, costly love. So we pray, Lord, to make us indifferent to everything but the will of God. God's will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. And not for our own privilege or power or influence, but for the sake of others whom you dearly love, who need to know that love, and you call us to show it. Lord, guide our time this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.